It's Bad History. Hey everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of Bad History. Bad History. My name is Steven, and you know what? I'm joined with just my best friend, Dave. Hey, what's going on, Steven? Uh, you know, nothing much, man. I'm here recording this episode with you. It's episode 34 of Bad History, which is, uh, man, 34 episodes of this, huh? 34 is a significant number. 34, I think so. Uh, 34 is a significant number. Uh, Do you know why, Steven? Why? (laughs) Because there is a rule about it. What's the rule of 34? (laughs) Oh, God, stop. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. You you disgust me. Uh, Don't Google that. This one's coming at you guys a little bit late there. Uh, It's a little late in the day. A little bit late. Um, we uh, wow. I don't know about you, man, but my last two weeks have just been an absolute shit show. I had the flu and I didn't tell you about it. Whoa, what? Yeah, I was really sick last weekend. That's why we didn't record. Oh man, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm I I worked last week. I worked seven days. I worked a full week. Um, I actually am working a full week this weekend too, but I have a little bit more time. Um, so but you had the flu. I worked seven days last week. I'm working seven days again this week. Uh, but we were finding time. So sorry, it's coming at you guys a week late. Um, uh, you know, fuck consistency. Am I right? The next one is not going to be a week early to make up for. <laughs> Probably not. No. Um, I'm going to be actually out of town next week, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so this week we are talking about historically significant pieces of literature. I. Uh, Dave is doing a poem and a novel. I'm doing two novels. Uh. So we're, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about how these pieces of literature have impacted history, the importance of them on history, the importance of them on society in general, I think. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Dave? Um, yeah. So, like, we talked about this a long time ago, and we said that they need to have an impact, um, you know, mostly culturally. Yeah, for then, sure. And uh, they couldn't be straight up, like, enlightenment pieces they no, couldn't no, no. be like uh what were the rules we said we couldn't do we any said, religious text because that's a bit uh like you know fedora e yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we can't do um uncle tom's cabin um but, yeah uncle tom's cabin uh i also i was gonna originally do the jungle by upton sinclair but i thought that was a little bit too on the nose yeah um i don't know that could have been good no, I it could have been good, but I think I, I think respond most people... to you because yeah. you asked me about that just because I wanted your self doubt to destroy you. Yeah, well, it did. Uh, <laughs> but no, I feel I feel like most people learned about that either in a high school English class or in uh, American history or whatever. Uh, like like most people know that the jungle is the reason why we actually have like D heck. But anyway, uh, so Dave, it's been a while. How have you been? <laughs> well, besides being sick, these last few weeks have been really good. Been doing a lot of law stuff. Been watching a lot of movies with my girlfriend. Nice. We recently went and got a bunch of the like new live action Disney movies. That oh yeah, been coming out that are all just garbage. I'm sorry, <laughs> but like. Every Which single one? one of them. Like, we watched Cinderella that came yeah. out, like, last year. Oh, yeah, that and, movie uh, made a huge splash, didn't it? I actually didn't know that movie came out. I'd never seen an advertisement for it. But yeah. you know what? It wasn't good, so I know That's why. That's why. There you go. And then we also recently watched the new Jungle Book, which actually had a lot of buzz and shit. But 
Yeah, it wasn't good either, man. Like, you didn't I'm like it? Sorry. No, not at all. Because that, that, but that movie got a lot of good reviews. So the that's CG was really awful. Oh, like, really? Yeah, and like the entire time, I was aware that I was watching like a little real human boy, like interacting with nothing. It's and like, like George Lucas's wet dream. Yeah, it was like so bad in some some scenes that like he was obviously like standing in front of a screen. And, That's like, awful. You could see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, I think CG is like not inherently a good thing anyway. So when you overload it in a movie, you you should either just make it a full cartoon or don't. Do right. You know what I for mean? sure. I totally understand that. You got to either commit or you don't commit. Like we watched Zootopia recently, and technically, uh, that CG in that movie isn't as good technically as it is in like the jungle book but it's much more appealing because there's not this like real human fucking everything up and reminding me that it's not real do you know what right I mean? how'd you like and zootopia i thought zootopia was pretty good I, it's definitely gonna win the best picture oscar one because it's disney and two because it's like racism and you know how disney is about or how the oscars are about like that kind of shit yeah yeah we got we got to prove to the whole world that we're not racist but i i actually enjoyed kubo and the two strings yeah i want to see that really badly and i also enjoyed the little prince a lot more as well but anyway steven let me hear about your weeks how's it been oh man you know it's just been a lot it's been a lot my dude i've been been prepping a lot i've been working a lot um like i said i worked seven days Last week, I'm working seven days again this week. Uh, so, you know, not really, don't really have any real breaks. But next week, I'm going to go into Florida for a wedding. Nice. So that'll be fun. That'll be fun. I hate Florida, but that'll be okay. You and I are so not on the same page when it comes to Florida. Like, several times we've gotten into arguments about Florida. Florida is the greatest state. I think Florida is fucking terrible. Florida is the greatest state. I'm going to live the rest of my life in Florida. <laughs> I just like I, uh, man. I hate I hate Florida something fierce, but I'm going to Florida for a wedding. Uh, one of my best friends is getting married, so I'm going down there, and um, that's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. But uh, but you know I've been grinding away, dude, chipping away at the old block, as they say. Uh, one one week closer to Christmas break. <laughs> the tremble in your voice at the end. <laughs> Where are you guys at in Apiro? Uh, in AP Euro, we are just started absolutism. Oh, so nice. we finished up War of Religions last Learning week. Learning about vodka. <laughs> you ever talk about an alcohol you haven't had a good experience with and just like tremble a little bit? Vodka or absolute vodka? Just vodka in general. Oh, I don't drink vodka. Yeah, I don't really anymore either. I'm uh, a but... woo girl. All I drink is tequila. <laughs> God, you're the worst. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so we're starting absolutism. We'll probably try to get through absolutism this week and then next week get through uh, Age of Exploration. And then we're done with the first period of AP Euro. So that's exciting. Let's let's get on with some history. How are we going to do it today? Uh, So today we, in an effort to deliver you guys some real quality content, we have both selected two pieces of work mine are a little bit more intertwined than dave's are so dave's gonna go first i'll go second and then dave will wrap her up there at the end with uh is with going again i think does that sound good sounds good to me man let's play that 
funkin' music. Play that mu- funky music. Was that a Metallica? It was Enter Sandman. Enter Sandman? Okay. Okay, Steven. Never so... fall asleep again. <laughs> That's not even close. <laughs> Okay, Steven. Yeah. So the theme that I wanted to center my works around is the theme of American myth-making. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like a little background. During the 19th century, the United States of America was having a serious identity crisis. In addition to the ever-growing divide in culture and politics between the northern states and the southern states, the new territories and western expansion were giving the different regions of the country unique identities. For example, an American citizen living in Boston would probably have more in common with somebody from Ireland than an American in Texas or Georgia. Hmm. The country was new and needed something more ethereal to act as a cohesive element between the states, more so than politics or economics. It was the best of times. Oh, God. It was the blurst of times. (laughs) America was missing a mythos, my friend. So Europe was full of history and identity, right? You got Charlemagne is France. Julius Caesar is Rome. Alexander the Great is both Greece and Macedonia. Also, Gustavus Adolphus is Sweden. Is he Sweden. is Sweden. He, yeah, everything that's great about Sweden. Gustavus Adolphus. But we were new. We hadn't sealed the pages of our history with the heroes of our creation yet. We lacked Romulus and Aremus. We lacked an Aeneas. We lacked a King Arthur. Those who had played the greatest roles in building our fledgling nation were still alive at this point. And America's path to development of these figures was mostly different than that of Europe. As always, we had to do everything just a little differently because we're Americans and we're better than you. (laughs) (laughs) The tales of our greatest heroes were not spread through campfire stories or poetic recitations, but through publication in Sunday newspapers. Moving to the first example, I want to talk about the author Washington Irving. Stephen, you ever read any Irving? I have not read any Irving. Well, Irving is America's greatest myth builder. He was a writer, essayist, and historian, my finger quotes were in the air, Mm -hmm. who is famous for writing Rip Van Winkle. Okay. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, shit. Nice. And the biographies of George Washington, to name a few. In his age, alongside James Fenimore Cooper, writer of The Last of the Mohicans, Irving was one of the first American authors to actually become famous in Europe. But one thing Irving created has outlasted just about everything else he has helped create. He created the story of not just America's most famous builder, but one of the most famous explorers in world history, if not the most famous explorer in world history, also Stephen's favorite person. Who is this? In 1828, Washington Irving wrote the three-volume work 
A History of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. Oh, fuck this guy. (laughs) So, Christopher Columbus, he was a well-known historical figure at the time, obviously. But what Irving did was craft a story full of hyperbole and flourishment to create one of the first purely American myths. The work, when it came out, was held as a paramount of American storytelling and was the most popular historical source on Columbus in the English-speaking world until 1942. Wow. So it's over 100 years, 1828 to 1942. Now, today, the work uh, does not hold so well (laughs) and uh, has been accused... Of creating more historical misunderstandings than insights? Huh, I wonder why. (laughs) So, most knowledge that the average American has about Christopher Columbus really comes from this book. Irving was not really a historian. He was more of a novelist. Though he wrote some really important biographies, such as... George Washington and actually the prophet Muhammad may he be in peace he was more of a novelist he wrote mm-hmm. stories not his stories <laughs> hmm. <laughs> uh, many of the famous historical inaccuracies that he wrote about can really be boiled down to the jarringly false accusation from Irving that Europe believed until Columbus's voyage that the earth was flat So everybody knows this story. Columbus, he was like, yo, the earth, it's like a ball. And everybody was like, loser, it's not. It's flat like a fucking table. And he was like, well, I'll show you. And then he did. And then he was the hero. And then they made the globe, right? Well, well, I mean, I think, like, also (laughs) one thing important to note about that is that the people who believed that the earth was flat were more of, like, the church. And not even that, they just, like, it was, like, the the great, be- great beyond expanse was, like, this scary, scary thing you don't get involved with. False. That is false. <laughs> Excuse me? Nobody at the time of Columbus thought the Earth was flat. Not even the church. Hmm. See, and I was trying, I was, I was trying to ease into that without calling you wrong. Because I... I didn't realize that you were about to do that. No. But, okay. Despite okay. what yeah, some... no one fucking believed the Earth was flat. No, nobody believed the Earth was flat. Uh, it was just... a fucking Ptolemy that uh, that measures the circumference of the I'll Earth? I'll get and... into it. Okay, sorry. So just, <laughs> despite what some celebrities and flat earther movement people will spew <clears throat> today, the medieval Europeans knew the Earth was round. The Romans knew the Earth was round. The Athenians even predicted the circumference of the Earth to within a very close deviation based on shadows and math, because that's what they were fucking good at. Was it it Ptolemy? Was I right? I don't fucking know. I think it's Ptolemy. I'm pretty sure. This was added to the story to inspire some means of patriotism in the readers. John Hazlitt, a scholar has written that Irving's avowed intention towards Columbus was thoroughly nationalist. Everything from begging Isabella personally to the mutiny to the flat earth, they were all part of this book. Despite these inaccuracies, the works were extremely well-received 
and are kind of the primary source of American history on Good. Christopher Columbus, which is sad. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. But when you think about what he was doing in a more broader sense, he wasn't writing the history of Christopher Columbus. He was writing a history of Christopher Columbus that gave him a very uniquely American identity. There are like six people that you have to know about in American history to have like the most basic level knowledge of what's going on. Christopher right. Columbus is number fucking one, right? Right. And everything that is taught about Christopher Columbus in schools, on TV, all that nonsense comes from this book. Not because it's true, because it inspires us to be American because he's not a Spanish or Italian sailor. He's an American explorer and discoverer, oh. despite not even landing in the United States. <laughs> yeah. You gotta love it, man. You gotta love it. Right. So that is the story of this book by Washington Irving and how it has undoubtedly affected the American mythos, the American mythology hero worship in america fables all of this becomes uh standard for christopher columbus because of this book right yeah it's definitely influenced the less scholarly communities uh appreciation of who christopher columbus was and why he's so important and why he is our hero killing all them natives not my job <laughs> he's your hero, Stephen. No, he's not my hero, Stephen. If it weren't for this book, you would not have done that episode on him. That's true. That's like the most angry I've been when we've recorded one of these things. And the only reason is because this book was written. So you got to thank Washington Irving for that shit. Yeah, thank you, thank you for allowing me to hate someone as much as I hate Christopher Columbus. He also wrote the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is That's also pretty good. Kind of like America's first monster story, if you think about it. Yeah, I was, uh, when I was doing, oh god, I, I can't remember what I was doing, but I remember looking up stuff about Sleepy Hollow, and it's like the first nationally recognized something. I can't remember what. It's like one of our fables, dude. It's like yeah. Johnny fucking Appleseed, but a little more metal. Yeah, no, it's great. It's Christopher great. Walken, <clears throat> going around, oh, yeah, yeah. chopping off people's heads. Sticking it on his god. Remember that? Remember the scene at the end of the movie where he sticks the skull onto his head? Oh and, yeah, or onto his stump. And the and eyeballs like, appear yeah. in the like sockets. It looks like fucking Army of Darkness. <laughs> it's the most like hot, like Disney's haunted mansion looking like CGI transition. Is that the most Tim Burton movie ever made? Yeah, dude, it definitely <laughs> is. Dude, it's good though. I watched it's, it the other it's a day. Pretty I'm good not movie. gonna lie. Anyway. It's long, dude. It's a long movie. Anyway, Stephen, did you think those uh those scrolls? I like those scrolls, man. <laughs> they I have like a they good were, quality. They're pretty good. They have, tasted good in my mouth. Awesome. The scrolls. Well, anyway, uh, part two. Yeah. We'll come in later. Shortly. Hang on, because I'm talking about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. So he's pretty dope. Anyway, so stick, Steven. So stick around for that after these commercials break. After these, yeah, just like, you know, go take a shit or something. <laughs> and by the time you come back, Stephen will probably be done and then you can hear me talk more. But anyway. Oh, cool. Thanks, Dave. Until then, Stephen, play the music. Let's play that music. Do, 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 do.
right, Dave. Yes. So you are. You, let's shift gears a little bit. I was going to ask you if you wanted to shift gears, and then I realized you didn't have a choice. I'm not the driver. Okay. Yeah. No, you're not. Not anymore. You're not. Get on over. Get into the passenger seat, because I'm driving now. Oh no. Steve's so, gonna fall asleep at the wheel and run over all the bumpy shits on the side of the highway. Yep. <laughs> you ever do that before? You do? Nah, man. I, I went on a road asleep. trip with you one time and you do that all the time. It happened like twice. It happened like a lot more. It than happened like that. twice. Anyway. So instead <laughs> of looking at the American mythos like Dave did, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit and I wanna talk about uh, two novels that severely kind of shaped our view of dystopian future. And of course, I'm going to be talking about the novels 1984 and Brave New World. How are we talking about uh, historical impacts? Do what? I thought we were talking about historical impacts. We are talking about historical impacts. I'm looking at c- culturally historical impacts. Okay. Yeah, man. Come on, keep up. It moves quickly. Yeah, we're not defining genres or anything. We're, just we're not defining about... genres. Come on. Come on, let me finish. Come on. All right, I'll, I'll, you can, can give me shit after I'm done. I'll, I'll let you go. All right. So both of these books are not only English classics, but they, <laughs> they served as important pieces of literature critiques on our government and the world. Uh, so 1984, written by George Orwell, Brave New World, written by Aldous Huxley. Uh, I'm going to talk about both of these separately and then kind of talk about them together. Um, I want to start the discussion chronologically by first talking about Brave New World. So like I said, Brave New World is written by Aldous Huxley in 1931. This is uh, his, probably his most famous famous uh, novel he's written. Um, he also wrote, this is his first dystopian novel he writes. He also writes the novel The Island, uh, which is another take on dystopian sort of future. Uh, but uh, this is his most famous work. It's written in 1931. And this uh, novel tells the story of the society in which uh, people are grown in labs and divided into five different sort of social classes, the Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and Epsilons. And so I'm going to kind of give a brief overview of the plot of it, because uh, that kind of helps understand a lot of the motifs throughout the novel. Uh, I'm not going to give away everything, because this this is, spoiler alert, my favorite novel, um, and I think everybody should read it. It's really, really good. Um, but... All these classes are pretty much content with their social standings because they're bred to be content. Uh, There are no families and emotional feelings are pretty much non-existent. Uh, Sexuality is treated as something that should be explored only uh, should be explored and uh, only really used for pleasure, not reproduction, uh, which is a really (laughs) interesting, which is a really interesting, uh, kind of theme throughout the whole entire novel that I'll talk about here after I'm done to giving the synopsis of it. Uh, the novel focuses around an alpha named Bernard who's self-aware about kind of how screwed up things are. Uh, the whole kind of people, you know, he, he, he's very aware of it. He's kind of emotional. He's like not happy with where he is and like what he's doing. Um, and people always like kind of say, oh, he got a little, you know, a drop of alcohol in his little like tube when he was being made in the lab. And that's why he's so like messed up. <laughs> There's a drop uh, of alcohol in your tube, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, he takes a trip to New Mexico to kind of clear his head. As um, this we is, all do. As we all do. And then this uh, the 
this this all takes place in England initially, and so he goes take a trip into New Me- to New Mexico to visit a Savage Resort, is what it's called. Um, and this resort is sort of like a Native American reservation. Uh, the 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 people who live there are. I guess you would call them, I mean, I guess you would say Native Americans. I mean, you can't really call them something definitely because this is a novel, obviously. Uh, but they, but they, but they looked and look and act different than the quote unquote civilized world that Bernard's coming from. Savages, savages, right? Yeah. Even human. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, so so here people are not laved, raised in labs, but they live in a society that more sort of closely resembles ours in terms of they have families, they're born naturally, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and there he meets a woman who is from England who is uh, gone there, there on vacation and she's separated from her group and is left there. And she's pregnant when she gets there, which is obviously like a huge no-no. No one's supposed to be pregnant. You know, you don't have kids in this in this world, and so out of kind of you know shame from having being pregnant, she uh, she stays in the in this village, and she has her 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 son, who is called John the Savage for the for the re- uh, rest of the novel. Savage is savage. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just every time I say savage, you're gonna drop that. Anyway, so this uh this 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 guy John the Savage who uh he he kind of looks like the Bernard and the rest of the people from, you know, this like civilized world in Europe, but he was raised by these uh, Native Americans. And so Bernard has the idea to take him back to England and pretty much show him off as like this, look, it's someone like us, but different. And um, John becomes uh, increasingly aware of how empty and backwards this quote unquote civilized society is. And he kind of refuses to be shown off to it. And over the course of the rest of the novel, he becomes more just like upset and more kind of uh, just like disillusioned to this whole thing until he eventually uh, he, he I don't want to give away the rest of the novel, but that's pretty much the whole novel. Right. Um, yeah. And so this book. Uh, the major themes of this book are heavily influenced by the Industrial Revolution. So this book is written in 1939, which the Industrial Revolution in England, uh, where Aldous Huxley is living, is you know ha- has obviously been developing over the last uh, you know, few dozen years, right? It's since the the 1800s, um, and so so Aldous Huxley, a lot of this reflects the Industrial Revolution, it reflects, it reflects uh, Henry Ford's uh, assembly line approach to things. Um, it reflects kind of, you know, building the perfect machine kind of uh, theme where it's, you know, people are built, they're not born. Uh, and also, uh, it, it kind of reflects the, the Great Depression, too. The Great Depression, which had hit the United States two years earlier, had made its way over to uh, England and the rest of Europe. Um, a lot of people tend to think the Great Depression was just an American thing. Uh, it, it affected the whole entire world. Um, but so uh, so th- these are some themes within England that he saw that are reflected in this book. Uh, also, Huxley took a trip to the United States before the writing of this novel in which he witnessed uh, what he believed to be deplorable behavior by the youths 
during the Roaring Twenties. So kind of uh, the free flowing, flowing sexuality, the um, the lack of really any caring about anything, and of just like focused on this idea of, like pleasure and things like that. Obviously, we see these ideas throughout the whole entire book. And so this book was made to reflect the extreme society that he saw to be a product of all of this. Um, so I now I want to talk about 1984 now because this gives a very very different view of the of dystopian future. Um, so this 1984 it's published by uh, George Orwell in 1949. So uh, about you know about 20ish years after uh, a little bit less than 20 years after uh, Brave New World. Uh, and this also takes place in England. And the way I see this novel is almost the, anti- the um, antithesis of Brave New World. Uh, instead of a world in which people are programmed to not want to think outside of the bun, people in the world of 1984 are forced not to. Uh, the backdrop, backdrop of this novel is uh, constant warfare between major supercontinents of the world. And the story takes place in England, which is part of the continent Oceania. Oceania being the United States, Latin America, and England. You also have uh, the USSR's supercontinent, which is the rest of Europe, going to the Bering Strait. And then you have this other supercontinent of Asia. And so people live in in a society in which their actions are monitored constantly by Big Brother, who is supposed to be like the supreme ruler of Oceania. And the Thought Police, which are exactly kind of what they sound like they're the police that monitor everything the story centers around this guy named winston smith who begins to grow disillusioned with society he begins to have an affair with a woman who shares a similar points of view with him uh, i'm going to give away the whole plot of this because i think it's important to really understanding how things work out in the whole ideas of this book um, they're approached by a co-worker who tells them about an underground resistance with it and they both pledge themselves to it they're soon arrested and find out that there was no resistance movement at all. And it was like a big sting operation that's in place to catch people who have anti uh, big brother and anti uh, kind of governmental sympathies. Uh, the book ends with them both being tortured and brainwashed into complacency. Uh, so not a very, very happy book. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Neither of these novels are super happy. No, no, not at all. Um, but the major themes of this book obviously stem from the fighting scene during World War II, nationalism, and censorship. Like I said, this comes out in 1949, so the war had been over for four years. And the Cold War was like starting to kind of pick up heat. And so obviously, this is kind of based off of that, where you have the United States, uh, USSR, and Asia being kind of the three big superpowers and that are constantly fighting with each other during 1984. Uh, so what impacts did these books have on our society? And like I said, both of these books had huge cultural impacts. Um, both of these books have become the staple of dystopian future novels, and at least in the United States, um, even though neither of these books are technically American. They're both written by British authors. But uh, they both tell of separate types of futures. Artists, musicians, and social criti- uh, critics draw upon them draw upon many of their major themes to describe the world that we are currently living and that we will maybe eventually live in. So the importance of these books is more of that they're kind of this, you know, one's one side of the coin, the other's the other side of the coin. They're both extremes that people like to draw upon to kind of critique our own society. So really, I believe that both of these books are important to to our society now, not just American, but I think uh, world, the world society, because they're both the left and the right extremes, right? 
and people can kind of use these to say, you know, these are novels, but they're realistic that they could, something like this could happen. And also saying things like this are currently happening. Um, in the West, we tend to pull out major themes of 1984 primarily, as opposed to Brave New World. And this is mostly due to the fact that oppression by government is what scares the crap out of us more than anything else, at least in the United States. Um, you know, we, we, we broke off from Britain because of oppressive governments. So 1984, I think, resonates with the majority of us because it's what we fear the most. It's having a government that constantly monitors and watches us. Terms like Big Brother especially, but also Thought Police, have really worked their way into our vernacular. Um, artists like David Bowie and Muse have both, uh, have both made music that were heavily influenced by 1984. Muse's album uh, Resistance... Their whole entire album is based off of 1984 for the most part. Um, and uh, and so we see less mention of Brave New World in our day-to-day, but some would argue that this is due to the fact that we have already started to see this process of self-obedience with our reliance to technology. I'm not saying I believe that, but I'm saying there are a lot of social crit- uh, critics ref- reference Brave New World when talking about our reliance on technology. Um, one thing, one kind of really, really just tasty piece of irony is that, um, there's a super, super bowl commercial that Apple did where they said, um, uh, they said, Oh God, what was it? It was something along the lines of like, uh, this is, this is not 1984 or something like that. Or like, this is not the, uh, something know, along those lines. I know lines. the commercial yeah. you're talking about. It's like awful and it's like, it has no sense of irony and like, mm. Yeah, well, it's and, like and the, the, the people are watching the screen, and then like yeah. the woman comes in with the sledgehammer and breaks it, and it's for Apple. Yeah, and it's like I mean, it's the most. It's ironic in the sense of it's just like you know, it's like oh, stray away from like the pat the, the 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 pact or whatever. But it's like it's the most like consumerism yeah. like centered, and it's just so it's 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 like the most brave new world esque. Yeah. piece of you know like commercial but with this whole thing but it like but it's not 1984 and like apple giving two thumbs up and it's like um, the the part about it is like because of its medium like a commercial yeah. on tv it is yeah. brave new world <laughs> right exactly and um and like didn't um you might talk about this didn't wasn't brave new world written as a response to 1984 uh no because brave new world's written before 1984 no but like uh i know uh, what's his name? Jesus Christ was like the the mentor of George Orwell. Yeah, he was his French teacher, and yeah. George Orwell like wrote like a draft or something. Yeah, I think I think he I because I've heard this too. Yeah, that he he sets like submitted him like an idea or an outline of like what about this? And um, then, and Huxley, uh, was, Huxley like, was like it would be more like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, I've heard that. I don't necessarily believe it. Uh. But then again, I didn't take a serious amount of time to find out if it was right or not. Just because my only thing, the only reason why I don't, yeah. But uh, the only reason why I don't believe that to be true is because the themes of 1984 are so World War II and post-World War II that it hurts. Yeah. And I just don't see George Orwell coming up with that during you know in the ni- late 1920s early 19 like the late early the early 1920s i don't 
I don't see George Orwell coming up with that. But then again, who knows? Um, it's kind of one of those famous stories from history, though, which is pretty interesting. But uh, Oz Huxley does write Brave New World Revisited, which is a non... It's not a, It's not like a sequel or anything. It's pretty much him saying, like, kind of breaking down the fourth wall and being like, okay, so I've written this super dystopian future book. 1984 is out as well. Let's talk about it. And uh talks about the... Um, you know, kind of where, what direction people are heading in now, which is interesting. Uh, but, but yeah, so I, I believe that both of these books are so important because of just their cultural relevancy to us today. And the fact that we can, we, we kind of use these as, uh, I mean, really they're as, as social critiques to our lives now and that they're so applicable to, to our lives now. Um, but, uh, I want to end, I want to wrap things up by, uh, with this excerpt from social critic Neil Postman, who says, uh, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that uh, there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would de- deprive us of information. Huxley feel- feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to, passively, to, to passivity and egotism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Which I think it does a good job of not only summing up the books themselves, but we read that today and we and it's a lot of that sounds very familiar to some of the things and some of the critiques we have are in our own society without even referencing both of these novels. Yeah. Um, so that's my uh, my kind of overview. And I know that was very literature heavy in terms of like that was very English y how hey, I described the history, it. History, man. The history of the books? Where's the history, man? <laughs> oh, no, I'm just fucking with you. Those were good scrolls, dude. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I mean I, I just I, I I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um we you know, I feel like history and English are very connected and intertwined. And uh I wanted history to and do literature, something. More so. Sure, yeah. yeah, history and literature, and I wanted to do something that was very that was very literature heavy because it's you know we we never ever talk about that kind of stuff in in this show. So, yeah. but yeah, that's my uh, that's that's my overview, I guess. Word. Well, it was a good scroll. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. So, what do you say we uh, we revisit? past dave and see what he's talking about let's see what he's talking about all right guys you can come back my story's done <laughs> play the right, music let's, let's play the music okay Stephen. so yeah. now that we're done talking about washington irving there's another uh, American poet that I would like to talk about right now who also created just as substantial an American legend through his literary works as Christopher Columbus. And that guy, you might have known, he's got a pretty dope name. It's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Right on. And you know why Was they he call very him, tall? You know why they called him Longfellow? Why? It's because he's very tall. Yeah. <laughs> so on April 5th, 1860, poet and Harvard professor Henry Wadsworth Longfellow climbed the tower of the Old North Church in Boston. Now, the Old North Church 
if you have seen the cinematic masterpiece National Treasure, is kind of the centerpiece of the legend of Paul Revere. Longfellow wrote his classic, Paul Revere's Ride, the next day. So, a little bit more about Longfellow before we talk about the work. Uh, Longfellow is one of the greatest American poets. He is responsible for developing the stories behind some of America's greatest historical characters. Alongside Washington Irving, he was one of the first American poets well-read and respected in Europe. He was an exceptional scholar, uh, being the first American to translate Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy into English. He was one of the five fireside poets who were the first American poets whose popularity challenged that of Europeans in America and around the world. Are you there with me, Stephen? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, I just didn't know if it cut out again. So Longfellow's works include the famous Evangeline, the Song of Hiawatha, and the Tales of a Wayside Inn. However, the seemingly most important to defining American history was Paul Revere's Ride. Written in 1860 and published in the January 1861 issue of the Atlantic Monthly, the poem could not have come at a more important time in American history. South Carolina had just seceded. God bless her. Civil (laughs) War was upon the country. Dividing lines were not just cultural anymore. America needed something to remind itself of its identity. If you're American... You have probably heard the poem at some point. Uh, It's told from the perspective of the wayside innkeeper. Uh, Stephen, it goes, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Revere. Later it says, One if by land, two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be. So Mm -hmm. that's that poem. Everybody knows Mm -hmm. that poem. The poem was written to the peoples of the Union as a call to action, to push their sense of urgency. The end of the poem speaks of the coming hour of darkness and peril in need, and as scholar Angela Sorby writes, by emphasizing common history, Longfellow was attempting to dissolve the social tensions, and it was a smash success. Longfellow essentially created himself the legend of Paul Revere. When Revere died in 1818, his obituary did not even mention his famous midnight ride. He was more known as a crafty businessman and silversmith. Right. Yet, because of this work, he became an exceedingly famous American figure. Everybody fucking knows Paul Revere. Mm -hmm. In 1875, the Old North Church began the annual lantern lighting ceremony in honor of Revere. This is like... You know, a hundred years after the actual right, yeah, ride, sure. but like just a few years after the book was written. At this time, silverware made by Revere, because he was a silversmith, became sort of American relics, right? The famous J.P. Morgan, that guy, reportedly offered $100,000 for a punch bowl personally crafted by Paul Revere. $100,000 in 1880s money. So that's like, a lot of money, dude. That's like a jillion dollars today. Yeah, that's like more money than I could count. Yeah, $100,000 back then for a punch bowl. That's like if a punch bowl today costs like 
$200 million. That's not true. But don't, whatever. To this day. Hey, Siri. A statue of Paul. How much? Oh, God. Hey, hey, Siri. Hey, Siri, how much is $100,000 in 1984 worth today? I didn't say 84. What would you like me to convert $100,000 to? Siri, I fucked up. Siri is the most useless thing on the planet, by oh, the way. Oh, nope, she said now, now. Uh, Siri, how much is $100,000 in 1880 worth today? This isn't helpful at all, Dave. Yeah, well, it's because Siri was designed by a bunch of monkeys on typewriters. Once again, it was the blurst of time. (laughs) (laughs) So to this day, a statue of Paul Revere stands in Paul Revere Plaza, opposite the Old North Church in Boston. This statue was not even, like, considered until the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere poem. Like, yeah, they didn't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't fucking care. He wasn't a person yet. So here's the rough part. As we all know, the historical accuracy is a problem. <laughs> always is. It always is. It always is, right? So we know modernly the historical fallacies of the poem, but for most Americans, it's kind of too late. Um, so for a long time, American historians relied solely on the Longfellow poem as a source of information on Revere. God, uh, and this is where our standard history book telling comes from. Uh, we know today that most of the actual events mentioned in the poem are false or misconstrued. Uh, for example, sorry everybody, uh, Paul Revere actually set the lights. He didn't actually wait for them and then take off. He was the guy. Um, and, and like another example is that that line in the poem that he crossed the river by himself to uh warn everyone he had a team and the team doesn't get any recognition and this is really where the the center of the problem comes from right so when paul revere made his famous ride he was accompanied by at least two other riders on his way from boston to lexington then to concord their names are william dawes and samuel prescott in, in fact, of the three riders, only Samuel Prescott even made it to Concord in time <laughs> to warn the militia there. Revere was arrested on his way and then brought back to Lexington and thrown in jail. Nice. So another person that you might have heard his name from because in sort of modern history, he's been kind of, you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you forgot about Israel Bissell. So Longfellow never mentions Israel Bissell. This is who Israel Bissell was. <laughs> Please well, tell me. While Paul Revere rode from Boston to Lexington, which is about 11 miles, Bissell rode from Watertown to Philadelphia, which is 345 miles. Holy dick. That's crazy. The entire time shouting, two arms, two arms, the war has begun. Also... Paul Revere never fucking shouted the British are coming because this would not make any sense contextually. At this time, America wasn't its own thing. The people living in America were, were British. British. <laughs> yeah. So running down the street saying the British are coming 
doesn't mean anything to them. That's just like running down the street today saying the Americans are coming. Like people would be like, right, right. Okay. What? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, But that's not important. None of that's important. Historical accuracy, much like with uh, Washington Irving, it's not important. Longfellow was intentionally altering history in order to create this historic figure, this heroic figure in Revere. He understood that at the time, America needed a heroic and selfless figure to stand behind. And every American could relate to the actions of Paul Revere. He was hardworking, self-made, and he was instrumental in gaining America its independence from Britain. And if you were in the North or the South, you fucking hated Britain. Because right. fuck them. Right. They're a bunch of tea-drinking bastards. <laughs> so, the way that these two authors use literature, Longfellow and Irving, is they came, like I mentioned, at a time when America had a very small cultural identity. It couldn't stand out from the rest of Europe. It didn't have anybody to hold up and say, these are the American heroes. These are the American legends. Nowadays, we do. We've been around for a while, not super long, but longer than like fucking Israel and Zimbabwe. So yeah. we've got like George Washington, we've got Abraham Lincoln, we've got Johnny Appleseed, Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie. We got the fucking badasses, right? Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett. We got the badasses. Uh, Charles Manson. But back then, we didn't have anybody. So these two authors were instrumental in using literature to develop the American sense of identity, the cultural sense of identity that we were begging for since we became independent. And that's yeah. why these two works are important. Because without them, yeah. Christopher Columbus would be an Italian sailor sailing for Spain. And Paul Revere would be a fucking douchebag. A silversmith. A silversmith. Yeah. And now they're like two of the fucking... The American heroes. American heroes. You can't... Like, if you go to any fucking, like, second grade class and you're like, Hey, guys, who are some American heroes? They're going to be like, Christopher Columbus! And they're going to be like, Paul Revere! And they're going to be like, Charles Manson! And, like, we have those because of these two guys now. So, they're really important to shaping American identity the end dude those were some good scrolls man uh very very interesting thank and you, thank you i think i think super important to understanding kind of our history as a country which is cool yeah dude well um, glad you liked it yeah this was a great episode i think this was way different than what we normally do so that's cool yeah dude. um I'm, I'm always a fan of, of changing things up mixing it up a little bit you know yeah uh so before we end before we end today's episode, a uh, few few things. First of all, Dave. Yeah, what's up? You brought this. You brought this to my attention. We've been doing this shit for a year. Oh my god, have we? We yeah, pretty much. Like uh, like like almost almost a year exact, Ugh. which is crazy. I want to die. Start, we started in October of last year, and we haven't missed a week since not true at all <laughs> that's not true at all um but yeah this is a year 
of of episodes, which is crazy, and it's crazy to think how much we've changed, how less shitty episodes have gotten. This one was uh, pretty shitty, though. I mean, that's what you say at the end of every episode. Well, that's how I truly feel. I know you do. I know. Uh, but yeah, I'm hoping <laughs> you know. Here's to a, another year of this. Another year. Another here, here. thirty-four episodes. Yep, another thirty-four. Uh, hopefully, a few more. You know, hopefully, we stay a little bit more consistent. That'd be good. That's okay. That'd be cool. Um, and and truly, seriously, thank you guys for hanging with us through this very interesting, hectic time period in both of our lives. Um, you know, we we love doing this show, and it and and uh, we 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 try to we try to meet those deadlines, but sometimes it's tough too. Uh, life kind of gets in the way sometimes, but like I said, we'll, we're trying to stay more consistent. Uh, we're trying to stay uh, keep, keep to the two week schedule. Uh, so expect another episode in two weeks. And in that theme, Dave. Yeah. Next week. Okay, so this week I did Columbus because it's Columbus Day. It totally didn't just fucking like happen to be like that i planned it i promise yeah so, for sure now that we're in october we've got fucking spooky shits and ghosties and pumpkins and draculas so next week or next time whatever we're gonna talk about <laughs> monsters yes we're talking about monsters so uh how do we want to outline this okay so we're so gonna we're gonna give a historical and mythological background to specific monsters i'm not talking about like uh you know fucking like vampires or werewolves i'm talking like Dra- dracula and the werewolf right <laughs> gotcha. right the wolf man the wolf man so fucking lon cheney we're heck yes we're gonna do goddamn not dracula <laughs> not Dra- no no no, no, no not Dra- dracula. I, say, I say i say the two examples you used are off the table yeah we can't use those but like any anything from Greek mythology, anything from uh, you know ancient Chinese mythology, anything to from African modern. mythology, American mythology, fucking Antarctic mythology, it's all good. For sure, Steven, all mythologies. Yeah, I'm going to give you a specific no-no, and then you can give me a specific no-no. Okay, okay. You can't do any kind of Leviathan or Kraken or sea monster. Ah, oh, damn it. You know me so well. <laughs> what about uh, me? What about me? Hit okay, you home. can't use. You can't do any. Hmm. Okay, your your monster has can't be uh, modern. It has to be it has to be derived from some ancient uh, okay. culture. Sounds good. Cool. 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 Awesome. Uh, so that will be next week. Then the week after that, we'll have a similar sort of uh, themed, spooky, spoopy, uh topic for uh, in regards to um, the lecture series that I've kind of been dropping hints about. I'm going to try to get the first episode of that recorded this week or next week. Um, I think I'm just going to tack it on to the off weeks of this. Uh, I think I'm just going to call it the Bad History Lecture Series. I will give the topic for what the first uh, series is going to be on. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the Protestant Reformation and then the subsequent wars of religion that followed it. So I'm going to probably do kind of block 
like episode blocks so maybe like like 10 episode blocks about the protestant reformation and the wars of religion and with the whole all those episodes and the blocks of episodes are going to be trying to answer kind of a central question that i drop at the beginning of the first episode of that block steven if yeah. we have any questions about your topics like yeah after listening can we direct those questions to you for answers uh yeah for sure you can um you can either send them through the facebook page send them through the email uh facebook bad history just search for bad history podcast emails bad history podcast at gmail.com email email me there for questions uh about that top that larger topic that i'll try to get answered um it's one of my favorite time periods in history uh and so i think that's going to be a lot of fun and i think there's a lot to unpack with that so that would be that'll be cool to talk about um, so yeah, so I'm going to try to get the first episode of that, that, of that recorded this week or next week, uh, and, and drop that. Uh, but if you want to find us on social media, Facebook, uh, bad history podcast, Twitter, bad history cast, uh, we're email bad history podcast at gmail.com. We're on several different directories, iTunes being the big one, uh, you know, leave a rating review, all that good stuff. And we're also on TuneIn radio, Google play music, uh, uh, Sprecher, so, or Stitcher, can't remember which one we're on probably both it's okay uh so yeah so i think that's probably gonna do it for us anything else you want to add dave i just want to say happy history and good scrolls everyone we will see you all very very soon adios